0: Hello, I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. This week, we welcome Katie Hutchings, who works as a music therapist.
1: Welcome everyone to Therapists Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing a healthcare professional each episode, asking questions that you want the answers to, and answering questions
0: that you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board-certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white cisgendered woman, and my pronouns are she, hers, and I... Recently watched all three of the conjuring movies in a row. It gets me every time.
1: Wait, is is Vera in the third one? Vera Farmiga. Oh yep. She's like the main character. Good for her. I didn't know if she'd be like, I don't want to sign on for a third. (laughs) That's not how she talks. (laughs) And I'm Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I'm a cis white woman and my pronouns are she, her. And I used to hide behind the TV when something was very scary and I was really little because I thought it couldn't see me.
0: That works. What a good, I feel like you didn't know what I was going to choose and I didn't know what you were going to choose. Indeed. So they. Indeed. But yeah, I, the Conjuring movies hit a little close to home because the Warrens are based in Monroe, Connecticut, which is the town next to the town I grew up in um so it's kind of creepy to know all of those things are were like really close by the first time I saw it in the movie theaters yeah uh but yeah I don't know why I decided to just like I was like let's just watch all three let's do it
1: no I dig it I watched all four well the first four alien movies last week in one day solid. And there's there's no shame attached to that. I think that's fine. One time I was invited to a baby shower in Amityville, New York. I didn't <laughs> up going because the weather was bad, but I also was like, I don't want to go to Amityville.
0: Yeah. I mean, my mom works so close to where they live. Like I could show you the turnoff to where their house is. Yeah. It's horrifying.
1: I, I do love when productions like pay credit to the local the local culture and get things correct but in a horror movie I feel like that would uh, you okay to deviate a little bit so <laughs> yeah. you traumatize an
0: entire county of people <laughs> who I guess are already traumatized because of all the ghosts oh Jesus uh. <laughs> so it is a true story <laughs> you heard it here they're all based on a true story Quotation. Marks. okay all right fair enough yeah.
1: does it span a couple years or is it all in the 70s
0: I think it's fan. I think it's the beginning of the 80s, like 81.
1: Okay. I do remember Patrick Wilson wearing one of those like big collared <laughs> shirts. Yeah. For the listener, I am drawing a big collar on my chest. <laughs> like 70s. So on a more serious note, dun dun, I faced one of our biggest fears as a white person trying to be <laughs> trying to be woke and trying to be a good ally. And I'd talk to my dad about his Blue Lives Matter bumper sticker and it was a it was a hard conversation but he responded really positively and it made me it made me feel a couple of things one i could have said some of these things to him a very long time ago and he wouldn't have rejected me and i could have given him you know some better ideas about his thoughts and and i think we fear a lot of conversations like that because yeah. of the the divisive nature of all conversations like that but it was I still walked away feeling like, okay, there are some beliefs here that I'm not happy with, but I was also happy to, be able to say what I was unhappy about. If that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know. Amazing. Hopefully, that can happen more in the future. Yeah. I know we've talked about that. That's so hard to broach that topic. I know it's that's great that that's you know one of the hardest things that we face, but it's really difficult to get into that. And I, I don't know. Maybe people can feel inspired, but <laughs> inspired by heroism. <feminism. laughs> My very safe phone call with my very kind father. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but that was my my bravery for the week. So now I'm just going to start running red lights and rolling through stop signs and not contributing (laughs) to society anymore.
0: (laughs) I'm trying to think of a time I was brave this week. It was probably like picking up a dead bug off the floor (laughs) without telling my husband to come and get it.
1: I'll take it. Oh, wait, my neighbor's grill caught on fire. Oh, goodness. And our grill is right under our, like a sunroom that our landlord built. So just this, these like plumes of smoke were coming in. And I ran downstairs and I saw these, flame, these flames licking, licking almost like the, uh, right above the grill. And she's like, I'm looking for baking soda. So I came down with my little box and she came out with like a six, six pound box of baking soda. <laughs> I pretend to be helping. <laughs> Um, it wasn't brave. I used all of Cody's baking soda and he wasn't happy.
0: (laughs) I didn't know that baking soda is what helps. It's probably bad of me to not know that.
1: No, it's good of you maybe now to know that. Yeah. I hope that we don't speak anything into existence.
0: Knock on wood.
1: Yeah. We can edit that out if I do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just go back in time. Yes. 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 Anyway, (laughs) do we have any housekeeping from our last episode? i do do you no i don't (laughs) i still haven't watched lucifer i guess that's my housekeeping
1: that's fine no that story i told yesterday about the doctor definitely happened when i was 21 not 18 might seem like it's not important to correct that but it is
2: okay (laughs) all right
0: correction made and again we still don't have ads in the podcast (laughs) so uh you can get them ad-free for free now. So, so enjoy. They just come ad-free.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, I don't, can't think of any more housekeeping. Yeah. Our website will be up and running soon. We do have additional resources. So check that out definitely um, at tndpodcast.com. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that'll be up soon. It should yes. already be up.
1: Yeah, it's up now.
0: Yes. By the we time said. you're listening to it, it's up. Time. That's how it works. <laughs> Uh, Join us after the break for our history lesson.
1: And now it's time for our history lesson. The history lesson is a narrative in the form of compiled facts about history, both good and bad, in order to give context for the field our interviewee works in. Our sources today are a blog post titled History of Early Childhood Education Then and Now by Stephen Bonnet, the website k12academics.com, musictherapy.org, uphs.upenn.edu, Wikipedia, as always, and (laughs) kids.kittle.co. Thankfully, today, there are no trigger warnings. First, we are going to start with the history of early childhood education. The roots of early childhood education go back as far as the early 1500s, where the concept of educating children was attributed to Martin Luther, born in 1483, dying in 1546. Martin Luther was a German professor of theology, a priest, an author, composer, Augustinian monk, and a huge figure in the Reformation, which was the pushback against Catholicism in Europe, and it introduced Protestantism. Back then, very few people knew how to read. Martin Luther believed that education should be universal and made it a point to emphasize that education strengthened the family as well as the community. Luther believed that children should be educated to read independently so that they could have access to the Bible. This, whatever your reason, this meant that teaching children how to read at an early age would be a strong benefit to society. Building on this idea, the next individual who contributed to the early beginnings of the early childhood education was John Amos Comenius, born in 1592, dying in 1670. He strongly believed that learning for children is rooted in sensory exploration. Comenius wrote the first children's picture book to promote literacy. It was titled Orbis Sensulaeum Pictus, or translated as Visible World and Pictures. Then there was John Locke, 1632 from 1704. He was an English philosopher and physician, one of the most influential figures in the Enlightenment, and he is commonly known as the father of liberalism. He penned the famous term blank slate, or as we call it fancily, the tabula rasa, which described how the minds of children start out and the environment fills their metaphorical slate. The next major influencer was uh, Friedrich Froebel, born in 1782, dying in 1852, who believed that children learn through play. He created both the concept and the term kindergarten, which transitioned without translation into the English language, or I guess the English vernacular is what I meant to put there. For, further building from this concept, Maria Montessori, born in 1870, dying in 1952, who was an Italian physician and educator, viewed children as a source of knowledge and the educator as a social engineer. She reviewed education as a means to enhance children's lives, meaning that the learning environment is just as important as learning itself. She took the position that children's senses should be educated first and then the children's intellect. The Montessori method is now an internationally recognized mode of educating children based on self-directed activity, hands-on learning, and collaborative play where children create make creative choices in their learning, while the classroom and the highly trained teacher offer age-appropriate activities to guide the process. Jean Piaget, who we know very well in our field, born in 1896, dying in 1980, established a theory of learning where children's development is broken down into series of stages, including sensory motor, pre-operational, and concrete operations. Piaget theorized that children learn through direct and active interaction with the environment. Lev Vygotsky, born in 1863, dying in 1934, proposed that sociocultural position for the development of children. He believed that social interaction provides a medium for cognitive social and linguistic development in children. Vygotsky described inner speech as being qualitatively different from normal or external speech. Although Vygotsky believed inner speech developed from external speech by a gradual process, with younger children only really able to, quote, think out loud, he died of consumption at age 37. John Dewey, born in 1859, dying in 1952, strongly believed that learning should originate from the interests of children, which is foundational in the project's approach. The educator is there to promote their interests for discovery and inquiry.
0: Rudolf Steiner, born in 1861, died in 1925, was the creator of what is now known as the Waldorf education philosophy in schools, focused on developing free and morally responsible individuals with a high level of social competence. Eric Erickson... Who was born in 1902 and died in 1994, developed psychosocial stages of development for children where the parent and educator play a pivotal role in supporting the child's success in every stage for a positive outcome. Loris Malaguzzi, who was born in 1920 and died in 1994, was the founder of the Reggio Emilia approach and was a strong believer in documenting the children's learning and interests which the educators would base their programming around on for the following days. David Weichert, born in 1931, died in 2003, was the founder of HighScope, which drew from the theories of Piaget, Dewey, and Vygotsky, primarily focused on the child's intellectual maturation. The landmark study that earned HighScope validity was the Perry Preschool Project in 1962. Results indicated an increase in academic success, academic adherence, and an increase in wages. Head Start, the first publicly funded preschool program, was created in 1965 by President Johnson, then VP to JFK. The federal government helped create this half-day program for preschool children from, low, from low-income families. Head Start began as a summer pilot program that included an education component, nutrition and health screenings for children, and support services for families. In the 1960s, only 10% of the nation's three- and four-year-olds were enrolled in a classroom setting. Due to a large amount of people interested and a lack of funding for Head Start, during the 1980s, a handful of states started their own version of a program for students from low-income families. The positive success and effects of preschool meant many state leaders were showing interest in educational reform of these young students. By 2005, 69% or over 800,000 four-year-old children nationwide participated in some type of state preschool program. The yearly increase of enrollment of preschool programs throughout the years is due to an increase of higher maternal employment rates national anti-poverty initiatives and research showing the link between early childhood experiences and the brain development of young children these factors have caused the rate of attendance in preschool programs to grow each year in most states there are multiple preschool or pre-k options for young children parents have the choice of sending their child to a federally funded head start program if their income is at the poverty level state funded preschool government-funded special education programs, and for-profit and not-for-profit providers, including those that accept government subsidies that help low-income parents pay. Currently in the United States, Georgia, Illinois, Florida, Oklahoma, West Virginia, and New York are the only states with legislation underway or which have universal preschool for all four-year-olds in the state. And Preschool for All in Illinois is the only universal preschool program that serves three-year-olds as well.
1: Now, moving on to the history of music therapy as we know it, the earliest known reference to music therapy appeared in 1789 in an article in Columbian magazine titled Music Physically Considered. In the early 1800s, writings on the therapeutic value of music appeared in two medical dissertations, the first published by Edwin Attlee in 1804 and the second by Samuel Matthews in 1806. Attlee and Matthews were both students of Dr. Benjamin Rush a physician and psychiatrist who was a strong proponent of using music to treat medical diseases. Dr. Benjamin Rush, the, quote, father of American psychiatry, was the first to believe that mental illness is a disease of the mind and not a, quote, possession of demons. His classic work, Observations and Inquiries upon the Diseases of the Mind, published in 1812, was the first psychiatric textbook printed in the United States. Rush served on the Pennsylvania hospital medical staff from 1783 until the time of his death in 1813. He was also the signer of the United States Declaration of Independence and a civic leader in Philadelphia, where he was a physician, politician, social reformer, humanitarian, and and educator. Quick turn of phrase, he also invented the tranquilizing chair, which is claimed to have done neither harm nor good. The 1800s also saw the first recorded music therapy intervention in an institutional setting, which was located at Blackwell's Island in New York, as well as the first recorded systematic experience of music therapy, Corning's use of music to alter dream states during psychotherapy. Interest in music therapy continued to gain support during the early 1900s, leading to the formation of several short-lived associations. In 1903, Eva Augusta Veselius, founded the National Society of Musical Therapeutics. In 1926, Issa Maud Ilsen founded the National Association of Music and Hospitals. And in 1941, Harriet Iyer Seymour founded the National Foundation of Music Therapy. Although these organizations contributed the first journals, books, and educational courses on music therapy, they unfortunately were not able to develop an organized clinical profession.
0: In the 1940s, three persons began to emerge as innovators and key players in the development of music therapy as an organized clinical profession. Psychiatrist and music therapist Ira Altshuler, MD, promoted music therapy in Michigan for three decades. Willem van Waal pioneered the use of music therapy in state-funded facilities and wrote the first how-to music therapy text, Music in Institutions, from 1936. E. Thayer Gaston, known as the father of music therapy, was instrumental in moving the profession forward in terms of an organizational and educational standpoint. The first music therapy college training programs were also created in the 1940s. Michigan State University established the first academic program in music therapy in 1944, and other universities followed suit. The American Music Therapy Association, AMTA, was formed in 1998 as a merger between the National Association for Music Therapy, NAMT, and the American Association for Music Therapy, AAMT. AMTA united the music therapy profession for the first time since 1971. Currently, AMTA is the intellectual home for, and serves, music therapists, students, graduate students, and other supporters. AMTA's mission is to advocate and educate for the music therapy profession as a whole. AMTA publishes two research journals, as well as a line of publications, and serves as an advocate for music therapy on the state and federal levels, and promotes music therapy through social media streams, and provides research, bibliographies, podcasts, scholarships, and newsletters to its members. Today, music therapy is an established health profession in which music is used within a therapeutic relationship to address physical, emotional, cognitive, and social needs of individuals. After assessing the strengths and needs of each client, the qualified music therapist provides the indicated treatment, including creating, singing, moving to, and or listening to music. Through musical involvement in the therapeutic context, clients' abilities are strengthened and transferred to other areas of their lives. Music therapy also provides avenues for communication that can be helpful to those who find it difficult to express themselves in words. Research in music therapy supports its its effectiveness in many areas, such as Overall physical rehabilitation and facilitating movement, increasing people's motivation to become engaged in their treatment, providing emotional support for clients and their families, and providing an outlet for expression of feelings. Join us after the break and we will talk to Katie Hutchings about music therapy and early childhood education. Hey everyone, this is Joanna with a quick note about this interview. There is a buzz in the audio that we couldn't seem to get rid of, but we think that this interview is super interesting and important, and we hope that you listen.
1: And now moving on to the part that you've all been waiting for, all of those who are listening. Katie Hutchins is a board-certified music therapist, working primarily with early childhood populations. Having received her master's in music therapy and counseling from Drexel University, she works full-time at Young Children's Center for the Arts in South Philadelphia, as one of the staff music therapists and as the director of Creative Kids, which offers music classes for families with young children in the area. Originally from the San Francisco Bay Area, Katie came to the East Coast to attend Haverford College and then received her master's degree in voice performance at Temple University. After attempting to make it in the opera world for several years, Katie decided music therapy was a better career path. She still sings professionally, mostly as a soprano section leader at a church, a professional caroler during the holidays, and an actress in local musical theater productions. Katie is also a mom of two kids, a four-year-old, and a nine-month-old, and is passionate about maternal and family mental health. Our dear friend and our former classmate, Katie Hutchings.
2: Hello. Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Of course, it's great to have and to see you. So because you already know us, tell us what you do as if you didn't know us.
2: Okay. Uh, so I work at an early childhood center. So we are you know, a typical daycare preschool. Um, the kids who come to our school, the youngest we have are one-year-olds and the oldest we have are five-year-olds who are about to go to kindergarten. And so what I do is every day, every class gets a half-hour group music therapy session. So I run anywhere from two to five groups in a morning, depending on my schedule. And we do a half an hour of music with them. Um, From an outsider's perspective, it probably just looks like fun music time at a preschool. Um, But as a music therapist, we know that we're working on all sorts of other therapeutic goals and sort of hiding them and making them um, part of the fun of music time. Um, So we're working a lot on social skills and language development, as well as gross motor development and fine motor skills, and also a lot on emotion and regulation, um, basically helping kids develop in a healthy way is what we do every day.
1: That's incredible. I'm so glad you mentioned that part of, I think that's a huge misconception about music therapy is that it does certainly look like something from the outside perspective, but we certainly know how many different layers of development are happening during that. So I'm glad you mentioned that. How has the pandemic affected your day-to-day?
2: Well, um, so in March 2020, we shut down just like everybody else. Um, We moved to a completely virtual platform. So all of a sudden, I was leading Facebook Lives for our families, was our most successful venture, um, as well as Zooms for individual classes. Um, But about three times a week, I was doing a Facebook Live for our whole community. um, So they could all tune in and have music in their homes. And they'd like the parents would type in little comments saying like, oh, this kid is jumping and loves it. And so I couldn't see them, but I had to pretend that I could see them. And so I, anytime a parent typed a kid's name in, I made sure to like give them a shout out. So they thought that I could see them in real life. Um, so it was crazy, um, but it was a really amazing way to see that we could still make music it just have to do it over the screen instead of in person. Um, and I know parents were really grateful for it as well. Um, partly is just something to pass the time and maybe they could get a little work done during that time. Um, But also a lot of parents don't really know how to incorporate music into their lives at home with their young kids besides just like turning on a random song or putting on YouTube. Um, So it was a way to help them engage with their kids too and sing along and maybe bring out some instruments or make some instruments at home um, and have them be able to still have some music at home as well. Um, And then we reopened in June, and we've been open ever since. Um, And we wear masks. All the kids over, two wear masks all day long. Um, I wear a mask, which is an adventure just staying with a mask on, but it seems okay. Um, And it's sort of normal... As normal as it can be, uh, the kids really don't mind wearing masks, especially the younger ones. It's just, They've never known not to necessarily, and they still sing and they still play instruments. Um, so I think the hardest thing for me is not being able to show them my face because I am a very facially expressive person, as I watched myself in a Zoom call (laughs) making faces. Um, But I use my face a lot to help kids learn what emotions look like and what different facial expressions mean different things. And it's been really strange to have to figure out how to adapt that in when you have half of your face covered. And so sometimes I pull down my mask and like make a face and then put my mask back up. Um, Or other times when we're doing silly songs that make silly noises, I realize like, oh, they can't see my tongue going blah, 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 blah. And usually they (laughs) laugh and then, but they can't see it. So those times I've been like pulling down my mask and for like three seconds, I don't have a mask on. Um, And other things I've just had to adapt that you just can't do that song or you do it differently. And then the other hard thing is doing um, interventions and activities about social skills. A lot of our things that I used to do with kids involve them holding hands together and jumping together or like sharing an instrument. And it's really hard to do that when you're worried about germs spreading. And we do some of it, we just make sure we clean things, but like, it it breaks my heart not to let kids hold hands as they like jump together. And that used to be such a fun intervention because they had to move together and try to jump at the same time and wait for the other person. And it's such a good lesson on empathy and noticing the other person. And you just can't do certain things anymore. And so I've had to sort of adapt and give away some of my favorite interventions, but hopefully we'll get to do them soon.
0: I also found it really difficult Like emoting with a face mask on during group, especially with kids just trying to like, you know, get those mirror neurons firing or, you know, make a joke when you're like, oh, you can only see my eyes. So you have no idea what I'm talking about.
2: Yeah, well, and we, I still do some online groups. That's actually one thing that's continued is um, through our Curative Kids program, which is all these music classes for families with young children. We still do an online class. And that's actually been wonderful because they can still see my face. And so you have these really young children, babies even, but they can actually like see me. And so I can mimic like opening my mouth really wide to sing this one part of the song or sticking out your tongue or making an animal sound or something, but they can see me so much better on the screen than in school when I have to wear a mask and I can't do that. There's been some nice outcomes out of this that the the virtual online program is still going and has reached some more people in a new way.
0: That's great. How do you feel like your personality is reflected in the music therapy that you do?
2: Well, I in general like to be silly and have fun. So I That's why I like to work with little kids is because I get to do that. Um, When I was going to school for music therapy and working with some other populations, I felt like I couldn't do that as much, especially with like geriatric patients, even though they appreciate the silliness, but it's not the same energy as I had. Um, So definitely that ability just to like be playful is wonderful. Um, And then also just being patient and flexible and going with the flow. Um, you never know what kids are going to be like on a day-to-day basis. And so being able to sort of match them at their level and maybe they don't want to jump and dance right now and maybe they want to do something more calm. Um, so I think those are important parts of my personality that work well with kids too.
1: That's great. I what do you think is difficult? I think this might tie in a little bit. So what's difficult about being a music therapist and what exactly you know, what isn't? What comes easy and what doesn't?
2: Well, I think I just said what comes easy is getting to be silly and creative and. Um, that's something that in my former life as an opera singer, sometimes I didn't feel like I always got to do as a professional, you have to like do exactly what's written and follow everyone's directions. And there's this, all this pressure and with kids, they're so much more forgiving. And if I play a wrong chord or if I make up a verse and the lyrics don't rhyme, they don't care. And they just want to enjoy and have fun and sing. And, um, I love that about working with kids is how forgiving they are. And that's very refreshing, especially in the professional music world. I think the hard, one of the harder things about being a therapist is I feel a great responsibility for all of my clients, kids, that I think there's this pressure to make sure that they all do well and that they all improve and that they all get something out of my session. And so um, I think as therapists, I'm speaking generally, but I think we all feel that we're responsible for our clients' well-being. It's like, that's our profession is to help people. And if we're not going to help them, then what are we doing? Um, so there's definitely a pressure to like, make sure they're all developing in a healthy way and they're all getting along and they're happy. And um, I care about all of them. And I think that's true of a lot of therapists as we end up caring a lot about our clients sometimes too much um so that's probably the hardest thing
0: you kind of already answered this um but what drew you into being a therapist
2: so I was uh attempting to be an opera singer I was auditioning in New York and around the country actually a lot um trying to perform and Be make performing my main income. Um, And as most people know, that's extremely hard to do, especially in the opera world. And so I was also teaching voice lessons. I was running um, choir workshops for kids in the city. And I was quickly learning that um, auditioning wasn't making me happy and that while I loved to perform and when I did get a gig it was wonderful those were few and far between and the stress of trying to make ends meet was not worth it and working seven days a week in all my various jobs was also not worth it and it wasn't making me happy. So uh, eventually too I was realizing that working with my voice students, like middle schoolers and high schoolers mostly, that I started to care less and less about how good they were singing (laughs) or their performance and more about how they felt about how they were singing and what they were learning and the connection that we were making as voice teacher and student and helping them build confidence in what they were doing. And I cared less about like if their German was correct or if they knew what that word meant or if their mouth was open enough and it was more like, well, how do you feel when you sing this and that sort of drew me to the music therapy world, realizing that what I cared about was less about the end product of the music and more about building a relationship with someone and watching them grow and develop and be really proud of themselves at all the work that they did. So eventually I went back to school at that's age 30. So,
1: Yay. That's such a cool cool and kind transition from two very distinct sides of like the music world in general. That's That's pretty amazing. What are people's reactions when you tell them what you do for a living and how would you prefer them to react if they don't react in the nicest way?
2: Most people, when I say I'm a music therapist that I work at a preschool, they go, oh, cool. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they don't follow up every so often. And I get excited when they ask. And they say, like, oh, well, what does that mean? And then I can give my little spiel. Um, and I can say, you know, we help kids develop in a healthy way. And that's our sort of main goal of music therapy. And then I can go give more details if they ask. Um, so I guess I wish more people would ask. You know, I'm happy to talk about it, but I feel like there's this rush of to like move on with your conversation and talk about something else. Um, And even like in grad school for music therapy, we were asked to like create our elevator speech of like, how would you describe what you do in a sentence or two? Um, And so like, I have my spiel, but I would love to actually just like chat with you about what I actually do, Um, but it's gonna take more than like two sentences, so. I wish, I wish people would just express more interest instead of just pretending like they know what it is and say, oh, that's great. You sing with little kids. Awesome. Moving on. Let's talk about something else. Yeah,
0: I mean, I, I agree. I wish people did ask those questions more instead of like, oh, okay, cool. How do you feel like your identity, either racial, ethnic, sexuality, gender, et cetera, helped or hindered your practice?
2: Well, as a white cisgendered woman of a fairly middle high middle class social economic class um I'm like very standard in term in the music therapy field there are a lot of us um so in a lot of ways when I was entering the profession I fit right in you know you'd go to conference and a lot of people looked like me and had similar experiences so it was an easy transition and um, I haven't really hit many barriers because of that. Again, it's helped me. Most of my colleagues are similar to me and have um, at least a college degree and some even an advanced degree and come from a similar background to live in a similar area. Um, so it's a an easy community to get along with because we share similar experiences. Um, I think because of that, though, I've I think I'm limited in my experiences because of my identity. Um, I mean, I grew up in California, so that's a little different from Philadelphia. Um, but I grew up in a very privileged white area where most of my classmates, majority were white, um, a fewer Asian American, a fewer black, but maybe one or two, very few. Um, and Philadelphia, obviously, is a much racially more racially diverse city, Um, and so that was new for me when I moved out here, Um, but the school that I work at now is mostly white. Um, Some bilingual, a few other ethnicities are represented, but not very many, so I mean, I fit right in, but it means I'm not really challenged in any way in terms of having to talk about race with kids or being like forced to or to deal with it. Um, I think we need to talk about it more. And I think we need to, it needs to be part of early childhood education, talking about identity in all forms. But I feel like that's just really more up to us as the teachers and therapists and the staff rather than like it's not hitting us in the face that we have to discuss it um, because we're a fairly homogenous community within the school. So it's also easy to stay in our little bubble and not discuss hard things.
1: How do you approach self-care?
2: Well, I have two kids, a four-year-old and an almost nine-month-old, which is blowing my mind. Um, So self-care is rare and comes in the form of, I'm going to escape and go for a walk for a half an hour, or I'm going to go to Target all by myself. Um, So there isn't a lot of time for self-care. And it's, I think... I've tried to realize that even tiny bits of self-care are wonderful. It doesn't have to be like, I can take a whole day off to relax and rejuvenate. It's just like, nope, I get 35 minutes of peace and quiet. Yay. Or I get to sleep. Sleep is a wonderful form of self-care. And especially with a baby, it doesn't happen, happen as much. So, um, So I think for me, just appreciating little bits of self-care and not like pressuring myself to do self-care has been really helpful, especially as a mom and a full-time working mom.
0: Wow. Yeah. That pressure to like, you have to take care of yourself. You have to do this. You have to do that. Uh, That can almost like negate any self-care that you do because then it feels like, oh, it's not enough. I'm not taking five weeks to like go to a spa. So yeah, self-care is definitely
1: a privilege in its own, but Katie, the fact that you're able to reframe it in such a way, like I, I know plenty of people that do not have half the responsibilities you have and they're like, oh, I only got to do, you know, hours and hours of all these things today to make me feel wonderful. But you're like, I went for a 35 minute walk and you know what, it was great. So, I mean, accessibility and privilege are one thing, but also reframing is a whole other thing. So that that's a great skill to have.
0: And uh, just like walking around Target slowly is also a great form of self-care. I love it.
2: Well, and especially after the pandemic, I mean, we're still in the pandemic, but um, because I was pregnant when the pandemic started and so I wasn't going into any stores at all. I was only once a... I went back to work, I was only going to work and coming home to be extra safe. Um, And then after I had my baby, it was still the pandemic and I still wasn't going to stores because I wanted to protect my family and then we didn't have vaccines yet. So now going to a store by myself, one, I don't even have my children with me, Lovely. Two, I'm in a store and still like a novelty (laughs) because I just didn't get to do it for so long. Like my husband was the one who would go to a store and I didn't because I was pregnant. Um, So it is... It's still a wonderful thing. And I think it so will be even when going to stores is totally normal again. Um, although I still wear my mask for sure. Um, but it's still nice just to have just a little bit of freedom to not have to like run in and get one thing or tell my four-year-old, no, we can't buy that toy. Nope, no toys. Nope, <laughs> nope, nope. We're just grabbing this. Um, so just to have a little bit of peace in a store, even if I don't buy anything, is lovely.
0: I dig it. It's great. So this is kind of in the same vein. What's one of your guilty pleasures and like, not just, you know, I mean, ice cream can be a guilty pleasure, but I feel like that's, that's a a general, like what's a real guilty pleasure of yours?
2: Um, I think especially since becoming a parent, um, like getting to binge watch anything is a guilty pleasure. And I, I, That's We were all doing that in the pandemic anyways, but that's always been it for me. When I had my first kid four years ago, um, that's what kept me sane during maternity leave, which was getting to binge watch things because he was so tiny that I didn't mind that there was a TV on playing adult TV shows. (laughs) And it was just such a wonderful way to escape. So I would rewatch everything. I think I've rewatched Grey's Anatomy, like the whole thing, at least four times in my life like all 15 16 seven, whatever seasons we're finishing the 17th season now I think that's the most re-watched one for sure is like drama soap opery Dawson's Creek is another one Gilmore Girls those from my past and reliving those lovely silly emotional characters is wonderful
0: Sarah, should we also share a guilty pleasure? <laughs>
1: I mean, I know, I know that four is a lot for 15 seasons, but I've certainly, I've, I've entered double digits for plenty of my shows. Um, I guess I should go
0: first this time, right? Guilty pleasure. Sure. Uh, I mean, I have one. It's really silly oh, and dumb, okay. but go it's like, it's one. very dumb. And I don't think I've ever told anybody besides my husband this. Disclaimer. Um, yeah. Uh, when you like make Jello and you put it in a container and you do the first spoon in the Jello, you can like make it like like fart, um, and it's like this release. I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do, and it sounds so dumb and so stupid, but I love it so much. No way, it's predictable. <laughs> you know it's going to happen. It's a
1: funny noise. Yeah, I get that. I don't have one loaded up and ready to fire. <laughs> Um, we were talking a lot recently about if we'd rather be like live barefoot or live with rubber gloves on, right? What well, we talked about recently, would you rather? Yeah. So I've been realizing lately that I, I'm getting like a lot of, it's not guilty. I'm just getting like unexpected pleasure from walking around the house. Now that it's hot, I'm getting unexpected, unexpected pleasure from walking around the house without socks on and feeling the different surfaces under my feet and getting very like I'm shaking my toes. You can't see them, but it <laughs> makes me feel a little strange, but I'm really enjoying myself. <laughs> All
2: right. Yep. Great.
1: It's embarrassing enough.
2: <laughs> no, I hear you. Especially as it's warm. As soon as it's warm enough to wear flip-flops, I am like sandals out in the world as soon as yeah. possible. So I I never thought of that as necessarily a guilty pleasure, but yes, I'm wiggling those toes out in the sunshine. It's the California it's a girl everyone. in me. Yeah. So. <laughs> I hate socks. I hate them.
0: Maybe that's my other guilty pleasure that I don't like socks.
1: I think we can allow ourselves to expand most thoughts that we have as guilty pleasures. (laughs) All right, Katie, what is your least favorite therapy phrase?
2: I hate the phrase. I appreciate you as a, as a phrase. I had an intern one say it to me. And I was just like, what does that even mean? What are you talking about? And I just feel like it's become this, maybe not even a therapy phrase, but it's just become this thing that's supposed to like encapsulate all meaning. And it's as if you see the person in their soul and you appreciate them. And I just, every time I hear it said, I just feel, it feels so fake to me and it feels like a, a way to compliment someone without actually complimenting them and it's like too general like I just want to be like well say something like honest and authentic instead like don't tell me you appreciate me fine tell me I enjoy talking with you or I appreciate that you listen to me or something but just the like I appreciate you I just drives me a little insane
1: I love your reaction. That That's how I react to people when they say in a backhand way, oh, I'll be praying for you. Yeah, <laughs> Like very much yes. like, okay, you are telling me you don't think I'm doing very well. <laughs> like, I appreciate you. I cannot think of one thing I can say kind about you.
0: So I'm just going to say, thanks for existing. We can add that in like one day at a time, you know? Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Katie, what's your favorite therapy outfit?
2: Um. So I work with young kids and every session involve, involves dancing and moving around. So as I was thinking about this question, I realized really all that matters is wearing pants that don't fall down while I dance around and try to play the guitar. <laughs> as silly as that is. Um, no. You know, you want to be really comfortable moving around and especially after having a baby and none of my clothes fit in the same way. Um, It's just, that is, it's a good day when I'm not having to hike up my pants every two seconds, trying to jump around with preschoolers while
0: playing a guitar while playing a guitar.
2: (laughs) Yeah. You just, you don't have that many hands to be strumming a guitar and doing the chords and trying to hike up your jeans at the same time so <laughs> it's like strum um, hike strum hike <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> yeah. I have stopped occasionally playing the guitar and I'm like oh hike up the pants um so yeah so I've I've really come to appreciate pants that don't fall down there you go
1: fantastic good guilty pleasure too <laughs>
2: I guess so I never thought about it <laughs>
1: Ah, what is a resource you feel like everyone should know about? Whether it is, you know, local, could have to do with health, could have to do with something creative, but what should we know about?
2: For parents with little kids, I want all of them to know about Lori Birkner. She is a wonderful singer-songwriter, children's entertainer, um, and she, her songs are the one music that I don't get tired of in the like young children's library. You know, you can only hear so many Rafi songs. You can only hear so much like Cocoa Melon and various newer things, but like Lori Berkner songs are wonderfully written and for music therapists they're a goldmine for um, interventions that deal with development because it's all about imagination and gross motor skills and counting and colors and animals and um, my kids both love them Um, and I think her music is so approachable for people of all ages too and it's definitely kids music but it also um, I say I don't get tired of it still, and I use it at work and at home all the time. So I highly recommend looking up the Lori Berkner band. She's wonderful, um, but that's the best resource I can think of for parents with young kids because that's what I think about all the time right now: is being a parent with young children.
0: It's oh, fantastic. I love her songs. When I was using them, uh, my favorite is the Shaky Egg. Is that, that's a, I know yeah. a chicken.
2: It's a good one. Oh, I know
0: a chicken. <laughs> yep.
2: And it has a shaky egg. Yes. It does indeed.
0: Can you remember the last time you thought, wow, I really needed to hear that? What was it?
2: I was on the phone about a month ago with one of my best friends from childhood. Um, she lives out in California and we do not talk very often. It's like a couple times a year, but she was my maid of honor and, you know, she'll always be special in my life. So when we do talk, it's lovely. And she always like, just gets it and knows what I need to hear. And I was complaining about something in my job and thinking about um, ways that I want to challenge myself in my job, but I don't know if I'm ready to do it. And she was like, Katie, yeah, just do it. Just do it. And it's that simple thing of like, you know, I think we talk about imposter syndrome all the time as therapists that um, we have been trained to do this work, and um, sometimes we're not sure if we're ready to for whatever reason. And then we just have to do it and trust our instincts and our experiences. Um, And I'm hopefully starting a new support group for parents that's going to be online um, and using music therapy to work through what it's like to be a new parent and have a kid and how that changes your life and um, how to bring music into your home. Um, And I've never done this kind of thing before. And my friend was just saying like, well, just do it. You have the experience. You've done this, everything else. You maybe haven't done this exact same thing, but just go ahead and do it. If you don't even try, you know, it won't happen. So it's those sort of like cliche moments, but you just need to hear it to power on and trust yourself. Childhood friends.
0: Definitely have a way of doing that. Sorry, Joanna. I was going to say, do you want to plug your support group?
2: Sure. Um, So this is part of our creative kids program. It's creative with a K. Mm -hmm. Creative kids. Um, (laughs) And um, the support group is going to be called Songs and Swaddles and it's going to be Tuesdays at 12 30 and it's for people who've had a baby within the last year it could moms dads caregivers anyone parents um and the idea is to come together and have peer support to talk about what it's like being a new parent because it can be really isolating to have a new kid and you feel like your identity changes a lot um and it's really out of your control, but you're supposed to like love parenthood all the time because it's this amazing miracle. And it is, but it's also really frustrating that you lose some of your old life as well. Um, So we're gonna hopefully meet uh, to talk about those um, experiences and share stories and also figure out how to use music, both as adults, um, how we can use music for self-care and also how to use music in our babies' lives as well.
1: That sounds great. It really does. That sounds incredible. Thanks. I'm and excited. List that on our resources as well, if that's okay. Definitely. All right, uh, getting a little more light. What is the most embarrassing thing <laughs> that has happened to you during a therapy session? Besides pulling your pants up.
2: I would say, but my pants have never fallen down completely. That would be the story to tell. Um, I don't know if this is really embarrassing, but it was the best thing I could think of. Um, as a sidebar, I was talking about this question with my husband. I was saying, I don't really have embarrassing moments as much of my life because I am a control freak and a perfectionist and I don't really <laughs> let them happen. Um, like, I really, I feel like I don't have your stereotypical, like, awful, embarrassing story. Um, so... That being said, but one thing I was thinking of, um, I had a four-year-old student at school a couple of years ago um, who just totally like outsmarted me and it made me humble again. So I feel like that's kind of similar (laughs) to being embarrassed. And it was that he got me on a knock-knock joke and it was just that he got me to start the joke for him. So I went knock-knock and he went, who's there? And he waited and he waited and I didn't know what to do. And I realized he was tricking me and then he made me start the joke. And then he wanted me to wait and realize that there was no more joke coming because it wasn't my joke anyways. um, So I think being outsmarted by a four-year-old was definitely embarrassing slash kind of awesome, but um, yeah, it was pretty great. but yeah, that's, that, that's like most, that's not even that embarrassing though. I wish I had a better embarrassing story for you. When I was performing more, I have more embarrassing stories from the <laughs> stage, but I got my dress stuck in a chair in my dress rehearsal once, it was like a huge, it was Marriage of Figaro. So I had one of those huge dresses with like hips that go out like, yep for so wide and I had never done this one aria in this chair before and I was supposed to sit in part of it and then stand up and walk along the table and I tried to stand up like mid aria and I I couldn't get my dress out of the chair and so I just like kept sitting and eventually I like yanked it out um but there's like those kind of stories um but not therapy ones necessarily I mean that one certainly works and
1: it sounds like you're very cool under pressure yeah (laughs) Um, What's your favorite breakfast?
2: I love like huge brunches, eggs, eggs, and more eggs. Unfortunately, my four-year-old is severely allergic to eggs. So that, I guess that's my guilty pleasure. I should have talked about that. (laughs) So my four-year-old is severely allergic to peanuts and eggs. So whenever my husband and I get to go out and eat somewhere else without him, we order anything that has eggs in it and potentially peanut butter, or both. Um, So that definitely a guilty pleasure. Um, So yeah, so I really miss eating eggs um, on a regular basis. So that's my my go to favorite breakfast of all times. Any form. It's a good callback too.
1: (laughs) Okay. I'm asking this question again, Joanna. So I'm not,
0: I'm, my judgment is
1: gone yes, from no Okay, if Katie, I'm there is a, a correct answer to this question. No, there's no more correct answer. There is, there is one that is right. And if you oh, don't- wow. know. No,
0: that's not <laughs> no, true, I'm being, it's not I'm being true. <laughs> now <laughs> I'm <laughs> nervous. <laughs> Which question? You should feel. <laughs> no, um, what's your favorite
1: color? No, okay. If you could have any <laughs> superpower, what would it be and why? <laughs>
2: I'm going to be boring on this one, but I just want to be able to fly. I just think, honestly, I know you're judging me already because it's a really boring answer. No, Um, no. (laughs) But honestly, I don't want any other other crazy superpowers of like being able to like shoot things or read people's minds or be invisible or like any of that. Like, I just want to be able to fly by myself. Like, how great would that be to be like, hi, see you later. I'm just going to fly to the store. Or, hey, let's go like fly across the country by ourselves in the air. Like, that sounds amazing. So.
1: No, I completely agree. Uh, to be fair, those three that you listed are definitely super villain powers, reading people's minds. And shooting. <laughs> but, uh, I originally, when I asked this, my answer was to fly and Joanna and our first interviewee very gently, not on purpose, not but corrected me. me and said <laughs> that, no, the correct answer is
2: teleportation
1: teleportation
2: oh. but no i wouldn't want to <laughs> just be able to teleport i want to see where i'm going but i, I think I i'd want the me. option to teleport can you do both oh yeah
1: okay oh yeah yeah we, <laughs> we could add a parentheses s but i i had thought flying as well for my entire life and then i realized that everything joanna explained i could just teleport to where i'd like to fly to you're just like
0: I teleport
1: Falling down. I think be, what like, we're what? learning is just that I'm very easily influenced by people with strong opinions.
0: Well, I, mine used to be flying too, because I was like, "Yep, I want wings, and that would be the coolest thing. I'll just fly anywhere I want." Oh. And then slowly but surely, adolescence talked me into teleportation.
2: <laughs> but then you miss out on the like beauty of it all, you know? Like, how cool would it be to like float over and like see the whole ocean and like you know?
1: Well, I'm assuming if you teleport into like a, a random spot in space, you, you can float there, correct, Joanna? You're not just going to step out of the door? I'm assuming you step out of the know. door. I,
0: I guess like gravity still probably works then. So <laughs> okay. I don't know. I don't know.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Harry Potter did not solve this for us. Maybe if you
0: like use a cape or something, you can float <laughs> for a little bit. And then you teleport away so you yeah. don't fall. Yeah. <laughs> <to the depths. laughs> Um, We have one final question, which is a, which would you choose or would you rather? Okay. (laughs) Um, On a long plane ride, would you rather sit next to someone who snores the whole trip? It's an adult who is snoring or sit next to a crying
2: baby. Adult who's snoring. 100%. That's so easy to just like tune out because a baby crying, I am just going to want to be like, here, give me your child. (laughs) Let me take care of it for you. I would feel so bad as a fellow mom. I Full disclaimer, I have never flown with my children. Partially that's because of the pandemic, partially because I'm just so frightened too because I would feel so bad if my child was the one screaming the entire time and I love to fly and I used to fly all the time so I'm not as scared of planes but oof I just that blood curdling scream from a baby I don't wish it on anyone and yeah not so much so yeah snoring psh, whatever snoring. <laughs> if they're like drooling on you or like dripping on you that's different or sneezing or coughing on you that would be way worse in my opinion is someone like wet cough, gross sneezing. This is all pre-pandemic too. But you know, like that someone who has like an active cold sitting next to me would be worse maybe even than the baby crying. I would say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I Katie, I agree for different reasons. I think that snoring has like a lower pitch, so it won't be as like, you know, it won't, it doesn't signal emergency like a crying baby does in our brain. And also crying or snoring has a little it's like a little more rhythmic so it could almost like lull me to sleep if my headphones are not fully fully blocking out all of the sound that they're making
0: totally. can i share an airplane story really quick yes i was coming back from i think croatia so this was like the long flight from like london to philadelphia and the person in front of me reclined his seat he no one was sitting next to him so he reclined his seat so far back and then hooked his elbow around the seat next to him so he could push himself farther back oh, my like lap area and then fell asleep like that with his arm elevated with his arm elevated like leveraging himself farther back yikes what on earth
2: people Mm. It was a
1: long five hours. Well, he definitely didn't have any feeling in that arm (laughs) for days when he woke up. I don't know. Oh, that's infuriating. Snoring or baby crying, did you say?
0: Uh, Snoring. Nice. Yeah. Because, yeah, I feel like it could be easily tuned out. Whereas baby crying, you'd want to be like, hey, let me help. I I feel so bad.
2: (laughs) There's no, like, danger in snoring, you know? It doesn't... Correct. It's I feel like snoring's annoying when it's your partner who's snoring and you're trying to sleep and then you're frustrated because you're not sleeping. But other than that, that's like the worst it gets.
0: Or it's your dog who's snoring and you're trying to sleep.
2: There you go. <laughs> yep. Or my, that. my
0: dog is an extreme snorer. I'm sure she will, her snores will be sometime on this podcast because there's no way to totally edit them all the way out. They will be here. All right, Katie, thank you so much for answering our questions. Thank you.
1: We'll <laughs> be right back after a short break.
0: Welcome back to our Thera story portion of the show, which is a funny or ridiculous story that you as a client had in therapy. We haven't asked yet, uh, for Thera stories from our listeners. So Sarah and I will share some Thera stories that are related to our topic today, which is preschool. Nice.
1: That's beautiful, beautiful segue, Joanna. Nice. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So I went to I went to preschool at St. Pete's in Riverside, New Jersey. It is no longer there, so I feel fine saying it out loud. And I would always tell my preschool teacher to call me by a different name, just because I. I have no, I have no idea why I did that, but I always like, call me, call me Patricia. Or you, I think I was trying to think of something more exotic. Cause there are a lot of little, a lot of little white Irish girls named Sarah running around. So years later, I went to a haunted house at the same school and the person taking tickets in line. So I was, I was probably like a freshman in high school at this point. The person taking tickets said, what's your name today, Sandra. And I was like, who, what? <laughs> Are you? And she was my preschool teacher. And she wow. and she was trolling me years later. And I immediately remembered who she was and what I had done. And in my shame, I went into the haunted house.
0: I um I went to a preschool called Laurel School. I still think it's there, but I'm okay saying the name of it. Um it was a converted farm, which is really cool. So like the three-year-old room was the chicken coop. So it was like just high enough for us little three-year-olds to run around. We got to put our, um, you know, book bags and stuff in the horse stalls. It was very cool. The reason that I liked Laurel School out of any other school that my parents uh, visited or or, like looked at was because they had tiny toilets and As a child, one of my quirks was I had to see the bathroom in every place we went. I just wanted to, like, see what it looked like. And the fact that they had toilets that were me size, I was like, this is the place. So that's
2: adorable. Yeah.
0: It's truly can, I tell, awesome.
2: oh, can I tell a preschool story as yes. well? I think this was one of the first times that maybe my parents realized that I wanted to be on stage and be a performer. Um, because in my preschool, they did put on a few performances every year and I say performances lately, but this was a production of Cinderella and they decided who would get to be a witch character by drawing names out of a hat and I did not get to be Cinderella, and I was quite upset about this, but I was chosen to be a chipmunk and to be one of, oh, maybe it was Snow White. I was going to say it was all about animals that were their friends. Maybe it was Snow White instead of Cinderella. Anyways, some princess that talked to animals, Um, so I happened to have a chipmunk costume already from another... Halloween or something (laughs) so on the day of the performance I came to school in a full chipmunk costume that had like fur on the back and the stripes and everything and I basically tried to steal the show as the princess's friend the chipmunk um, because I wasn't allowed to be the princess
1: Um, that's incredible what a nice deviation from we all need to be the princess (laughs) You knew what you knew what was up.
2: Oh, I wanted to be the princess, but you know, when you can't be the princess, you be the chipmunk that steals the show. Absolutely.
1: Definitely shining a light on how many princesses had like rodent friends too, just
2: yeah. them scoot around. And-
1: All right. Thank you for listening to the show today. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can check us out on Instagram at therapists next door, therapist is plural, or on Twitter at therapistsndpod, all one word, or visit our website at tndpodcast.com.
0: If you would like the ability to vote on what questions we ask our guests and so much more, maybe even future ad-free episodes, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tndpodcast. If you want to submit your Thera story, which is a funny or ridiculous story that you as a client had in therapy, for us to read on the show, email it to therapists. That's plural, nextdoor at gmail.com with Thera Story in the title. That's therapistsnextdoor at gmail.com and Thera Story in the title. Until next time, we, we are your, your therapist <laughs> next door. I
1: can't resist. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>